What's going on, everybody? Hardest part of the ring. Back again with another apron bump. And today on the apron bump, we are going back in time once again to 1994. Ooh, doggy. That's a fucking long time ago. Um, so this will be the, uh, the second installation of my, uh, Wrestling Wars of the 90s series, where basically I'm going back starting in 1994 and revisiting WWF, WCW, and eventually ECW. Three major companies of that time, of that mid-90s era. And it's designed to go back and not only look at the shows individually, but to kind of look at how each promotion is interacting with each other. You know, what what uh what stars what wrestlers jump ship um how the storylines of each company influence the other there's so many fascinating things that i'm already seeing just in between wwe and or uh, wwf and wcw you may have seen uh my recent episode on wrestlemania 10 which occurred in march of 94 this episode here be covering wcw Spring Stampede 1994. Uh, the first ever Spring Stampede that they ever did occurred on April 17th, 1994 from Chicago, Illinois. Man, what an interesting show. Um, if nothing else, I can say it's interesting. Because full disclosure here, I have never watched WCW. I've seen a few matches here and there. I've seen some clips of some moments. So I'm aware of the general vibe and feel of it. But I have never, I don't think I've ever watched a WCW show start to finish. Ever. And Spring Stampede 1994 will be my first. And I understand this is, you know, this is not, this is not NWO WCW. This is not Goldberg. This is not Booker T. This is a very, very different era of WCW. And an era that the company was kind of in a transition period. Uh, Eric Bischoff is newly the uh, the head of WCW at this point. Um, the company itself is thoroughly in the uh, the secondary role as far as wrestling in North America goes. Because obviously you got WWF. They just had their huge event of WrestleMania 10. Um, and, you know, while WWF is also in a transition period itself, um, they're still firmly at the top of the industry. And WCW is in second place. And it's kind of always been like that, at least at this point. So, but um, a very interesting era because, you know, both in WWF and WCW at this point, there's a high level of turnover. You got guys leaving a company and jumping to the other, both directions. And, you know, just watching this show, it's crazy how many, how many wrestlers on this show are in WWF within like a year or two. I would go, I'd, I would say probably like half of this, half of the card is probably out of WCW by next year or maybe two years from now. And just to add on top of that, you have fucking Hulk Hogan about to join WCW within a, within a month, I believe, right? Because if you listen to my WrestleMania 10 episode, you know, I spoke a lot about how WWF was kind of dealing with Hogan's absence. He was such a pillar of the company for so long and now they're all of, a sudden they, all of a sudden, they don't have them, so they have to figure out who is going to hold the flag for that company. Now, conversely, now we move over to WCW. Now, Hulk Hogan is going to grab the flag from whoever is holding it at this point, and he's going to wave that flag for a whole different company. 
really, really crazy stuff. And then Macho Man will soon follow him. Lex Luger, um, you know, the, you know, NWO and all that. That's all. That all happens within maybe a year. I think it's still like two years at least until that happens, which is why I wanted to start in this era because I think it's important because, you know, we're here to kind of look at the evolution of not only these companies individually, but the evolution of competition and wrestling. It's a very relevant topic nowadays with WWE and AEW. A lot of things, there's a lot of parallels between 2020 wrestling competition and 1994, but at the same time, there's a lot of stark differences. A lot of differences that I don't think a lot of people understand, and I think they will understand, and I think I'll understand them better as we go through these shows in 1994 and beyond. So, WCW Spring Stampede. This show. Now, I never, like I said, I never watched WCW. I was a WWE kid, so... And I was also one years old at this point, by the way, so I obviously wasn't watching this live. But I think that's good in a way. I think that gives me a fresh outlook. Because I think a lot of times, and I find myself doing it when I do my reviews of the Attitude Era, I find myself kind of being in this cloud of nostalgia, right? I I enjoy things more than they deserve to be enjoyed just because of the the nostalgia element of it. With this, as I'm watching this show right here, Spring Stampede, I have no nostalgia because I've never seen it. And I don't have a lot of connection to really anybody on the show. So it allows me to have a fresh outlook on the product and it allows me to watch it with a clear head and objectively um, give my objective commentary on each of the matches and the show overall. So really looking forward to it. Um, And you know, it's just not only have I not seen WCW, not only am I not connected to the wrestlers on the show really, at least emotionally. You know, it's it's 1994. This is 16 years ago. Wrestling was completely different back then. We saw that in WrestleMania 10. So many things, the the general uh, vibe that they go for, the characters, the exaggerated promos, and all the blood and all the crazy stuff. Such a different time in 1994. And in watching this show, my thought was, man, is this going to hold up to today's standards? And after watching the show... In general, I can say that no, (laughs) it does not hold up, at least for the most part. I think, I mean, we'll dive into it as we get into the matches, but there wasn't that. The matches on this show were, for the most part, pretty dull, pretty formulaic, and um, just very, very consistently, like I said, there's a formula to it. And I think, you know, we might as well just dive right into it, right? And we'll kind of look into that, so... Show opens up with a little package in the beginning. I like that. That's something that WWE didn't do for WrestleMania. It didn't like kind of overview the storylines that were occurring on the show. It just kind of gave you a general feel of what WWF was. But here in WCW, they give you they pretty much break out every match in the beginning and kind of give you a little synopsis of what the rivalry entails and why these guys are fighting. Very brief. And I kind of wish they would have put them in between each match. Because they didn't really. They kind of just had this opening package and then the show kind of just flowed without any further like review of what their rivalry has been and why these guys are fighting. It's important to me to know why people are fighting on these shows. And for the most part, I really didn't. And they, I don't know if it's that's the fault of the commentators, if that's the fault of the production, if that's the fault of the, of the performers themselves, or maybe it's just a combination of all of that. But for the most part, as I was watching the show, I'm like, okay, these guys are wrestling each other, but why? They might have titles associated to them. They might have a gimmick match or something. But 
for the most part, I didn't really, uh, I, I couldn't connect to the characters for whatever reason. And maybe that's just me looking at it in a 2020 lens. Maybe that's just me because I didn't live through this time. But for the most part, it was just wrestling for the sake of wrestling. But whatever the case may be, they did do at least a, attempted to kind of refresh the viewer in the beginning here with this opening package, which is pretty good. Especially for the time, as far as quality goes. Um, and then you got fucking Aaron Neville singing the Star Spangled Banner. Might be the worst Star Spangled Banner I have ever heard in my life. God, I know that's his style. I know there's people that like Aaron Neville, but fuck, he sucks, dude. God, fuck, that, that almost ruined the show for me. I almost just turned it off right there and said, never mind, I'm not going to watch this. That's how bad it was. But... <laughs> um, Whatever. So that happens. And then um, gets thrown to the commentators of the show, Tony Schiavone and Bobby the Brain Heenan. Throws to them. They give a little introduction of the show. Get the viewers ready to watch some WCW wrestling. Um, this is actually the first time I've ever watched a show start to finish that had Bobby Heenan on commentary. I know that might surprise a lot of you because he was such a figurehead in the early 90s. But that's not really when I was watching that's when I was uh, born or unborn. So, um, <laughs> so it was it was really really fun to, to listen to Bobby the Brain Heenan. Although I've I've heard from people that lived through his era that WCW was kind of him on the downslope, but I thought he was very entertaining on this show, and I thought him and Tony had great great chemistry. Um, so the commentary on the show, I have no qualms about it. I thought it was very entertaining, and I thought they did a good job. Um, highlighting the matches themselves as best that they could. So, first match, Johnny B. Bad versus Diamond Dallas Page. Fucking Johnny B. Bad might have some of the worst nicknames I've ever heard of in wrestling. Ever. I think he had a bunch of them, but what? The Kiss That Can't Miss? The Prettiest Man in WCW? Are you... Go fuck your mother with those nicknames. That is awful. Terrible. Oh my god. His, his, his overall gimmick. I don't even know what you call it. It was almost like a little Richard. Like a jacked up little Richard. That's what he was going for. And I don't know who that's for. But it's not for me. Um, <laughs> fuck. And then you have DDP come out here. First of all, he's not the DDP that we all know from Nitro, right? This is just... DDP with a cigar in his mouth and sunglasses and fucking he has the diamond doll with him as his manager. And I mean, this is fuck. This is pre DDP yoga, man, because DDP is looking thick. He is a thick boy in 1994, but we all know he bounces back from that. But whatever. The match itself was fine. It was a, like a five minute opening match. And that's it was pretty much what you want in an opening match. Um, Johnny B. Bad looked really good. Gimmick aside, I think um, I think I think Johnny B. Bad, Mark Marrow. For for those who don't know, it's also Mark Marrow in WWE is who Johnny B. Bad is. But I think he just would have done a better. I think his career would have reached much higher heights had he not been saddled with terrible gimmicks his whole career, both in WCW and WWF. Mark Marrow was a fucking joke. He had silly weirdly flamboyant gimmicks not that there's not that there's anything wrong with being flamboyant but it just didn't fit him and it didn't resonate with the crowd it seems so but it's a shame because he was so he had a great look 
Great physique. He was super athletic, especially for the time. And this match with DDP, he's whipping out head scissors and he does a, a fucking uh, a tope over the top rope within a single bound. And the finish of this match was a top rope sunset flip. So DDP's like bent over on the mat. Johnny B. Bad is on the top rope, and it's I guess it's kind of an old school move. You don't see this a lot nowadays, but he jumps from the top rope over DDP into a sunset flip for the quick pinfall. So Johnny B. Bad gets the win here, but the match itself was just it was like it started off quick, and then it was like four minutes of headlocks, and then they went home for the finish. So you know I mentioned before how these matches were very formulaic on this show, and this is a pretty good representation of it. Start off hot. Rest holds for however long until the end and then do the finish. That's what most of the matches on this show were, unfortunately. But, uh, yep, Johnny B. Bad gets the win over DDP. And then after the match, it throws to uh, Mean Gene Okerlund and Jesse Ventura, who are on the stage area with mics. Um, I think Jesse Ventura, was he not in... I meant to look, look this up earlier. I believe he was at WrestleMania. Uh, the previous month, and now he's in WCW, which just goes to show how quickly this turnover is happening. And, you know, Jesse Ventura will return to WWF eventually soon after this. So it shows how volatile and how um, how sensitive the industry is and how willing people are to move for whatever pays them more, whatever gives them the best environment. So really, really interesting to see. And then Mean Gene Okerlund, both these guys are just kind of, you know, given some other, some more overview of the show. Uh, they plug the hotline with Sting, which I don't know if that was real or not. I don't know if that actually happened, but basically they give a number where you, after the show, can dial a number and talk to Sting live, which I'm sure was like a pre-recording or whatever it was. I didn't live through that time. I don't know what it was, but really funny stuff, really archaic stuff and interesting to see with a 2020 lens. <laughs> what kind of, because now you can just fucking message a guy on Twitter during the show, before the show, after the show, and then sometimes they'll even respond. So it's uh, it shows how um, less accessible these stars were. And I think that says a lot. I think that um, kind of contributes to the star power people had in this era. You know, wrestlers in the 90s, you couldn't just tweet at them. You had to wait for them to be like on a talk show or to have like, a, like one of these hotlines. So I think that really made wrestling... I think that was a really great attribute of wrestling back then is how larger than life these characters were and how separated they were from the fans because right now the fans and wrestlers it's kind of a lot of overlap but back then it was fans huge separation wrestlers so in that sense i kind of like that i kind of like that how it was back then but nothing you can do about it nowadays with social media how it is next match flying brian pillman versus lord steven regal for the wcw television championship um first of all before i get into the match itself i don't i don't know why they like rotated ring announcers because they had michael buffer and then some other guy and uh this match they had michael buffer announcing and he's announcing these guys and he's like describing their attire but they're like coming out of the entrance way they're coming from the gorilla position we see them coming out we see what they're wearing why are you describing regal as red tights with blue trim we see it anyways um <laughs> this match for the tv championship regal is the champion and uh brian pillman is obviously trying to capture that championship and i believe because this is after the hollywood blondes if you're not aware the hollywood blondes was a tag team that was comprised of uh stunning steve austin 
and Brian Pillman. Obviously, Stone Cold and Brian Pillman. Um, and they had a lot of success with that tag team. But I think this is fresh off of their breakup. And I think both of those guys individually are uh, kind of on their way out of WCW. Um, I think within a matter of months, both these guys will be gone. And I believe Steve goes to... Is this before? I believe he goes to ECW. Yes, that's right. And after this, Steve goes to ECW and Brian Pillman, I believe, goes to WWF. Um, but I know they both are in WWF within a matter of years after this. So really interesting to see Pillman here, knowing that he won't be there for much longer. Uh, but that didn't stop him from performing because Brian Pillman had a lot of fire in this match. Um, I haven't seen a lot of Pillman's work because he's kind of before my time, unfortunately. But um, I think especially in this era, when you think of the context of what wrestling was in this era, I think Pillman was very, very revolutionary and very unique in his style. So like I said, good energy from Brian Pillman. Uh, but then, you know, as Pillman is firing up, Regal cuts him off, hits him with a really, really nice Northern Lights suplex. And then from that point on, it's just Regal doing various submissions on Brian Pillman. Which, I mean, if there's anybody that I want to watch put on submissions on guys, it's, it's William Regal. Or Steven Regal, I guess, at this point. But Regal, I could watch him put on submissions on guys. But it just went on way too long in this match, man. It was like 10 minutes of it. Just rest hold after rest hold after submission after here's this hold. And then, you know, Pillman starts to fight out. But then Regal puts him in another hold. And it's like 10 minutes of that. And you can hear the crowd getting restless. I mean, like I said, after like 10 minutes of that... They start booing, they start, you know, just having general apathy about the match. But then it becomes clear, I don't know if that's the story they were trying to tell or not, but it should be noted that these matches have time limits. So this match had a 15-minute time limit. So around the 10-minute mark, the ring announcer announces that there's five minutes remaining. So it's like, okay, so is Regal just trying to run out the clock? Is he just trying to reach to reach a draw so he retains his title? I don't know if that was by design or what, but I guess that makes sense if we're looking at this from a pure sport point of view. But guess what? It's not a pure sport. It's sports entertainment. We're supposed to be entertained. And for the most part, this match was just not entertaining, um, which is unfortunate because both these guys are really talented and I think they were capable of a lot more. But for whatever reason, it was just rest hold after rest hold. And, um, and, at, and at one point... Steve Regal's manager, Lord William, which is kind of funny considering he kind of took his name in WWF, but Lord William, who is Regal's manager, comes to the commentary booth and reminds the commentators that if it is a time limit draw, that Regal retains the title. So I guess, yeah, it probably was by design when you look at it that way. Regal is just trying to run out the clock and retain his title, which I get the story, but it just was not, the execution of it just wasn't entertaining to me. Um, but the last, like... 60 seconds, 90 seconds was pretty hot. Once again, Pillman fires up, has a lot of energy, um, hits a drop kick that makes the crowd pop, that gets the crowd out of its feet, out of its feet, on its feet. And um, But he never really capitalized on it. And then the last like 30, 20 seconds kind of just petered out. I think they could have done a lot more with that last stretch. I think rather than just one drop kick at the you know 14 minute mark, I think you could have had Brian fire up at like 13 minutes and just have a really awesome last two minutes with a lot of false finishes and whatnot. I think that would have greatly benefited the match and the quality that it was. But ultimately, it kind of just peters out. Regal retains through a time limit draw on a pay-per-view. 
Yikes. Um, so yeah. After that, it goes to, uh, goes backstage with Mean Gene Okerlund once again, standing by with Colonel Parker. Colonel Parker is a manager of several wrestlers on this show, but the one that he is with in this segment is Bunkhouse Buck. Now, I know zero about Bunkhouse Buck, but from looking at him, just from watching this show, I'll tell you this. His gimmick sucks, and he doesn't know how to stand when Colonel Parker is talking. He's like like fucking Will Ferrell in Talladega Nights. I don't know what to do with my hands. Like, that's <laughs> the vibe that he had when Colonel Parker was, like, talking him up backstage. But I don't know, man. His gimmick is just Tennessee redneck. I think that's pretty much the depth of it. So, I don't know. I didn't like Colonel Parker with Jeff Jarrett. I didn't really like him with stunning Steve Austin on the show either. And I for sure didn't like him fucking Bunkhouse Buck, who, I mean, I guess it fit. I guess their personas meshed pretty well, but ultimately I just didn't see a reason to care. Like, I, I, what, I hate him because he's a redneck? I don't know, man. Maybe, I, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe it's because I didn't live through it. Maybe I'm just, maybe it's a you had to be there thing. Who knows? But you could probably say that a lot about this show. Anyways, next match. We have a street fight. Holy shit. Cactus Jack and Max Payne versus the Nasty Boys. Hoo-hoo, right. So I watched this match. I watched I watched it twice. So I watched it the first time, and my thoughts were, wow, what a sloppy, shitty mess. Then I kind of browsed some reviews of this show and listened to some podcasts, and everyone seems to praise the fuck out of this match. I think Dave Meltzer gave this match four and a half stars, which it might have been easier to get back then. But nonetheless, and it's only one guy's opinion, but that just shows how like highly regarded this match was. So I'm like, wait, did I miss something? So I watched it a second time and I had no different thoughts. There were a few spots that I missed that were pretty gnarly looking, but all in all, this match fucking blew. (laughs) I mean, look, all right, maybe that's a bit harsh, but... I mean, because we, like like I said, I keep, I keep kind of saying this, but I have to look at it in a 1994 lens, right? In 1994, you weren't seeing this hardcore stuff, not nearly as often as you do now. So, like, table spots, chair spots, um, all the various weapons and stuff that they did. Me watching in 2020, it might seem kind of underwhelming, but in 1994, it was pretty crazy. So, in that sense, I kind of get how... You know, for the time, this match was great, but I don't know if it necessarily holds up. Um, and like, and just once again, I have no idea why these guys are fighting, by the way. Um, <laughs> so I'm watching and it's just four guys hitting each other with weapons. But for what reason? You know what I mean? I can't really engage in the match as well as I want to because I don't know why these guys are fighting and I have no emotional investment to either of them, good or bad. So obviously... Uh, very early in McFoley's career. And I will mention before I get into what this match was, this is a month after McFoley loses his ear. He literally still has the bandage around his head. He has he is freshly earless. Freshly earless Foley is here and he's wrestling a goddamn hardcore match against the nasty boys. Are you fucking kidding me with this shit? Do you want this man to die? But Whatever. Like, so the match starts and it's just a lot of hullabaloo. It's just a lot of shenanigans and tomfoolery in the beginning. We got pool cues. We got steel chairs. 
By the way, these guys are hitting each other with chairs that are still, like, unfolded. Savages. So they're not hitting them with flat metal. They're hitting them with, with just jagged shapes and just really brutal, brutal stuff. I would even say needlessly brutal. Um, whatever. They're all fighting. They kind of pair off because um, it's two tag teams. So it's kind of one guy fighting one guy over here. And you got one guy fighting one guy on the other side of the arena. And they, for a while, they have like a split screen, which is kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, just chaos. A lot of chaos. Um, and I mentioned, you know, Cactus Jack, he lost his ear a month earlier. And the spot, if you're not aware that he lost his ear is when he clotheslined Vader over the top rope and he did that thing where you know, he clotheslines his opponent over the rope but he also does a somersault over the rope with him. But when he did this to Vader, his ear got caught in the ropes and it just ripped the fuck off. Now you might be asking, you might be telling yourself, well, that's a freak accident. If that happened to me, I'd probably never do that again. But here we see Foley, like within the first minute of the match, do that same exact spot. This man needs... A straight jacket. Um, <laughs> no, man. Um, I mean, I admire the I admire the courage. And Foley at this time, that's how he built his name, was doing these crazy stuff and taking these crazy bumps, which he took a lot in this match. Um, so, Sags, Brian Sags from the Nasty Boys. And uh, is that his name? I don't know. Sags is his last name. Sags and uh, Max Payne are fighting by, like, the entranceway where the merch stand is. <laughs> And uh, Max Payne body slams Sags through a table that has all the merch on it. Crowd loves it. Crowd is eating it up. Um, you know, Foley and Knobs are fighting, like, around the ring. Now, if you haven't seen this show, the setup of the arena is, like, the uh, the ring and the ramp are on the same level. And then the ramp is kind of skinny, so you have kind of a ditch on either side, right? So Foley and knobs are fighting on the ramp kind of near the ring at some point a table gets brought out not uh, not folded up just a table with its legs sticking out and fucking knobs smashing fully in the head with it just out of sheer brutality um and at one point he uh i think they're all now they're all kind of reconvening on the ramp uh sags grabs fully puts them on the table goes for a pile driver but the Table just buckles under the weight because it's like two huge guys on a slim wooden table. So what do you expect from that? Um, but the crowd still is going apeshit for it. They love it. They love the chaos and they love the just the the craziness of this match. Just just nonstop action this match was. Um, and at one point, so uh, I think it was Sags that got put through the merch table, right? So as the other three are fighting by the ring. Sags returns with a shovel, a big like snow shovel, just starts cracking people on the head with it. Um, Foley gets knocked off the ramp onto the floor, which is a solid, it had to be a solid five, six foot fall. Falls, takes a back bump onto the concrete from six feet in the air. Uh, it looked like he cracked his head. I don't know how he didn't, if he didn't, but just a really, really stiff looking bump. And then Sags. He has the shovel in his hand. He goes over to Foley, who is now borderline dead on the concrete floor, and smashes him in the head with the shovel as he's on the ground. Think of like a concerto, but instead of a chair hitting the mat next to the guy's head, it's a shovel actually hitting your head. <laughs> this guy gallagher him 
on the concrete and that is what ultimately led to the finish the nasty boys win this match really brutal but just kind of there's no um i don't know i hate to like watch this brutality and be like ah it was okay two stars but like (laughs) it was just a lot of nonsense and i guess there's a there's an audience for it you know ecw's kind of uh in its beginning stages at this point. They're not really extreme championship wrestling yet, but there is clearly an audience for that, you know, under there's a groundswell for it. So, and the people in this arena in Chicago, they love this shit. So who am I to say that this is a bad match, but it just, it just wasn't for me. And I should also note, so I listened to Eric Bischoff's podcast, 83 weeks and uh, him and Conrad Thompson reviewed this show and one thing that was very interesting to me is that this match is basically what got McFoley fired because he was just, I mean, you, you kind of get it, right? He's a danger to himself. He's a danger to his opponents. He's a danger to the fans at ringside, which, uh, I mean, he fully ultimately found his environment where he could do that in a safe manner. But yeah, man, just really crazy stuff here. And it's crazy that this, this match, this style of match has turned Eric Bischoff off to McFoley. Um, so yeah, watching this match back and knowing that makes a whole of a lot of difference. So, um, but God bless, God bless these guys. A lot of brutal bumps in that match. But after that, we have something very different. We have the United States title on the line. The champion, stunning Steve Austin, taking on Great Muda. Man, what an attraction! I haven't seen too much of Muda, to be honest. I have seen a few matches here and there, but again, he was just a little bit before my time. But every time I watch Muda wrestle, I'm just like, man, is there anybody smoother than Great Muda? One of my favorite spots that anybody does is that elbow drop that he does. It's ba- it's kind of like a people's elbow, but it actually looks like it hurts. You know what I mean? He, he's just his footwork, his general athleticism, and his technique, and his, his storytelling, all of it. Is great. I love Great Muda. I'm a big Muda guy, even though I haven't seen nearly as much as I would like to of his work. Um, but Muda versus Austin here. What a match. A, a crazy match. It's crazy to think that this match ever happened. Uh, knowing where uh, Austin would soon be at in the industry and uh, kind of the legacy that Muda had. And you would think with all that in mind that, man, this match is going to be a barn burner. It's going to steal the show. It's going to be match of the night. Match of the year. Well, it was none of those things. Um... Once again, we move back into that formula. We had some fun. We had some weapons and all that. But oh, back to the formula. Muda gets some offense in early. Crowd gets hot for it. You know, he has a lot of fire, a lot of energy, a lot of speed, a lot of momentum. And then it's Austin. Cuts him off. Submissions. For forever. He goes for a... I don't know, man. This match is it's very dull. If I had to describe this match in one word, it would be dull. Dude, he, like I said, Austin cuts him off in the beginning, and then it's literally like five hours later. And then he's still in submissions. He's in a headlock for like the whole match. At one point, Stone Cold goes, or I guess he's not Stone Cold, but I'm, fuck him, he's Stone Cold. Austin, he's like attempting a new finisher, which is a submission hold. I guess it's like a toe hold of some sort. And he sets up for it, like kind of like AJ Styles does when um, him and his opponent are both standing, looking at each other, and he kind of rolls into the calf crusher. That's kind of what Austin was trying to do here, but he he really fucked it up, and it looked really goofy and silly. Um, and silly. Um, but yeah, crowd was confused. I was confused. Bobby Heenan was confused. But 
whatever it is, Muda at the end starts to make his comeback, hits Austin with a stun gun, which is his own move, um, hits a sick Hearn Kanrana from the top rope, which in 1994 was an absolutely insane spot. Crowd is on their feet. They're loving every second of it. You know, Colonel Parker gets involved. Great Muda goes and kicks his ass, throws him out. Get him out of here. Yeah, yes, yes, silly ninny. Yes, silly Tennessee ninny with your stupid hat. And he throws all, you know, he's, he's hitting Austin, hitting all his offense. Crowd is on fire. Muda's approaching a victory. He's, he's come over here from Japan. He's going to get his victory. It's going to be a great moment. And then he throws Austin over the top rope, and it's a DQ. Match is over. We're done here. Anyways, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just another, I understand this was a rule back then. I can't even wrap my head around why it's a rule. If you get thrown, oh, if you throw your opponent over the top rope, that means you are DQ. Dull match with a bad finish. I mean, I'm curious, what, what is the origin of that, that rule? I would love to know. Please, somebody let me know. I could probably Google it if I wanted to, but I don't want to. But yeah, dull match bad finish it had its moments but ultimately it just felt like a waste of time watching it but uh yeah i guess austin retains his title so uh whoopty fucking do after that we have jesse ventura backstage interviewing dustin rhodes what <laughs> just seeing him in aw nowadays and seeing him back then it's there's actually more similarities than i thought there would be but he's definitely a different persona nowadays he's his, he's his own man Back then, Dustin Rhodes, the natural Dustin Rhodes, is doing his best Dusty Rhodes impression. Which, look, I get it. It's his dad. I get it. You know, everybody's gonna associate Dusty Rhodes with Dustin Rhodes. But man, Dustin here is literally like he's talking like Dusty. He's his mannerisms are like Dusty. He's dressed like Dusty. Like it's all like. I mean, obviously, he would go on to WWF and make his own legacy there. But it's just funny to see how how tied to the Rhodes legacy he was at this point, which I guess I can't knock, but um, yeah, very strange. Very strange how similar they were, um, but it's just crazy. Once again, within a year or two, Dustin's gone. He's in WWF, Austin, Pillman, Foley's gone, Mark Marrow's gone. It's uh, it's crazy, man, the high turnover WCW has at this point. But anyway, so after that, we have the WCW International Title on the line, your champion, Rick Rude versus Sting. Man, Sting, I don't think anybody on this show was nearly as over as Sting was. This is still surfer Sting. This is still blonde hair Sting. But man, everybody was hanging on every movement this man had. When he came out, when he got to the ring, when he was in the ring wrestling, people in Chicago in 1994 went ape shit for Steve Borden. Man. Um, and that's just something I can't, like I said, man, I keep saying it over and over again, but I didn't live through this time and I wish I would have because I just, um, I didn't have the same emotional connection watching this match, but I can appreciate it. And the crowd reacting so, uh, generously towards him definitely enhanced my viewing of this match for sure. But, um, before this match starts, Rick Rude grabs the mic, you know, he's doing his, uh, before he even gets a chance to talk, before he gets to do his whole shtick that he does, he's cut off by Harley Race. Harley Race at this point is the manager of Vader. So basically Harley Race comes out to challenge whoever wins this match, Vader gets the next shot at the international championship. So that's basically where we're at there. 
Sting is like, hey, Harley, what you doing in this ring? This is my time. So deposits him out of the ring very quickly, and then the match starts. Um, like a lot of the other matches, really hot start. Um, Sting hits a huge back body drop onto Rick Rude. Hey, Rick Rude's still wearing his robe, which made it all the more hilarious and awesome. Um, huge back body drop. The crowd is loving this, man. Sting, nobody had more fire and was able to take advantage of a crowd cheering him better than Sting at this point. Um, but then it all comes to a halt. You know, Sting gets cut off, you know, Rude has him in a headlock and then Sting puts Rude in a headlock and it's a lot, a lot of headlocks, a lot of headlocks in this match. I think this match is actually, uh, for the headlock championship. Because uh, both these guys are clearly top contenders for that title. Again, following that formula, dull match until the finish. So the finish comes. Sting starts making his comeback. Hits the Stinger splash. Um, goes for one. Sting makes his comeback. Um, throwing Root all over the ring. And then he goes for a Stinger splash onto Root. So the re- But hits Rude and the ref at the same time. Because Rude and the ref are kind of sandwiched in the corner, but Sting just says, fuck it, and hits both of them. Ref's dead. Rude's down. Now, with the ref down, of course, that's when the interference comes. So, Big Van Vader comes out to the ring with Harley Race. Sting attacks him. He wants no part of his interference. Gets rid of Vader, knocks him out of the ring. But that allows Rude to regain control of the match, attacks Sting, and he goes for his Rude Awakening neckbreaker, but Race is still pissed. He comes back in the ring with a chair and he attempts to hit Sting, but Sting ducks at the last minute and hits Rude in the back of the head, which gives Sting the win. New international champion, Sting. You know, again, another really dull match with a hot ending, I guess. Although the ending here was just overly convoluted. It wasn't necessary, in my opinion. And it's just, it was just weird. Like, the, the, the chair shot setup was weird and awkward. The way Sting just covered Rude right after it was awkward. And it was, I don't know, really weird. But I guess it set up what they had planned for the future um, with this match. So I guess it accomplished that. But the match itself was very, very whelming at best. Um, but after that, we have a bunkhouse match. Bunkhouse match. Yeah, Dustin Rhodes versus Bunkhouse Buck, which I guess is a street fight. I guess that's what a bunkhouse match is. Who gives a shit? Um, it's like a sh- Chicago street fight, is it? Um, but yeah, so Bunkhouse comes out, standing in the ring with his tattered clothes and his drool and his what, whatever his character was. He's standing there being being Bunkhouse Buck. Dustin comes out, sprints to the ring, does a dive from the ramp. Over the top rope, into the ring, knocks down Buck. Man, even back then, man, a lot of athleticism from Dustin Rhodes here. And that surprised me. I didn't expect that way. I didn't expect this match to start off that way, but really cool spot there. Um, so they're fighting all over the ring. A lot of this match takes takes place on the outside of the ring. At some point, Buck grabs like a wooden plank, like a two by four or something, and just smashes Dustin in the face with it. Dustin's bleeding. Within the first, <laughs> had to be within within the first like ninety seconds of this match, um, and a lot of this match, Buck is dominating Dustin. Dustin's a, a crimson mask, as some may say, um, but then eventually uh, Rhodes fights back and uh, hits him with the bionic elbow. Crowd 
popped hard for the bionic elbow, as they should. Uh, again, just homaging to his father, which, you know, you could take it or leave it. You could say, okay, he's kind of harping on, he's kind of hanging on the legacy that his dad established and not really creating his own legacy. But at the same time, the crowd loved it. So who's to say it's a bad thing to do, right? Um, so yeah, Dustin hits him with the bionic elbow. He rips off his belt and starts whipping Buck. Um, really, really brutal belt shots. Has him in the corner. And um, he does a little spot, you know, when you get on the top, your opponent's in the corner, you get on the second rope, and he rained down 10 punches. He did this, but with bionic elbows, which was pretty funny. Um, crowd loves it. And then he follows it up with a running bulldog for a really good false finish there because uh, he pins him. But then Colonel Parker runs in to interrupt the pin. Uh, Dustin says, hey, guy, what you doing? So he beats down Colonel Parker, throws him out of the ring. Uh, Buck tries to capitalize on this, but he can't. Uh, Dustin beats him up some more. Um, but at some point, Buck is on the edge of the ring. Colonel Parker hands him some brass knuckles, hits Dustin in the face with it, and gets the pinfall. What a 1970s finish that was. Um, I don't know. Honestly, if I had to pick a match of the night, this would be up there. Um, maybe other than the main event. But um, this, this match definitely superseded my expectations of it. Granted, I had a pretty low bar, but as far, looking, at, looking at all the matches on this show, this match probably entertained me the most. So, um, good stuff here. I, I know Bunkhouse Buck gets a bad rap. I, I literally don't know anything about him. I've only heard bad things. Um, <laughs> but this match is, was pretty good. Um, it had its good moments. Dustin Rhodes was really great even back then, even early in his career. Um, just goes to show... Uh, what a career he's had and still going in AEW. So pretty solid match here, um, but definitely uh, a little dated in some ways, at least in the finish it was. I still enjoyed it. You can look at it and, and you can put yourself in that context and enjoy it for what it is. And that's pretty much what this podcast is all about at the end of the day. So, But after that match, we are once again backstage with Jesse Ventura, um, who is interviewing Rick Rude, who just lost his international world championship he lost the big gold belt, and he's pissed. I'd be pissed if I lost that beautiful title belt. I would be absolutely livid. Um, so as he's yelling at the camera, as you know, as you do in the early '90s, uh, Vader walks in, and uh, you know, Rude, you know, starts yelling at Vader. He blames him for his loss. You know, they start to tussle a little bit. Um, it's broken up by uh, like four referees or whatever. I don't know. Um, Nick Nick Bockwinkle, who's the commissioner, comes in. He breaks it up and. I guess what they're doing is setting up a future match between those two, um, but never actually occurred. Um, kind of sad here because this match with Rick Rude was one of his last matches ever. Um, about two or three weeks after the show, uh, Rude and Sting are wrestling for New Japan. And at one point in the match, uh, so Rude is on the outside of the ring. Sting is on the inside. Sting hits a top rope tope onto Rude. But the way the setup around ringside is... You have the ring, and you have the floor around the ring. But then there's a, a, another level below that that set that kind of is in the crease between the ramp and the ringside area. And when when Sting jumped on Rude from the ring onto the outside, Rude landed like back first on that crease. And it looked if, if you go on YouTube and look up that spot, it looks really brutal. But somehow Rude is able to finish that match. Um, a tough son of a bitch, man. But yeah, that match and that injury pretty much ended his career. Um, so whatever they're setting up with with Rick Rude and Vader never actually materialized. 
Um, but yeah, really interesting and really sad to know uh, where Root is in his career. But whatever the case may be, the match after that is The Boss versus Vader. Couple of big lads slapping meat here. Uh, the Boss, if you're not aware, is the big boss man, as he was known in WWF. And uh, he's facing Vader here. Again, much like pretty much every other match on the show. I don't know why these guys are fighting other than, hey, I'm big, you're big. Let's see who's the biggest. So, Boss comes out, and then Vader comes out, and uh, Boss meets him in the aisleway. They start brawling on the ramp. Vader knocks down the boss at one point, and uh, it should be known that Vader's manager here is Harley Race, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so Boss is laying on the ramp, and he's holding down the boss so that Vader can splash him. Uh, but the boss moves and pulls Race into his place, and Harley Race ends up getting crushed by Vader. It's a fun little spot there. Um, it's funny. Uh, Heenan, Heenan at one point on commentary is like, hey, why do we even have a ring? Nobody's, nobody's even using it. Uh, <laughs> really funny line by Bobby Heenan there because it's true. A lot, of, a lot of street fights and a lot of tomfoolery happening outside of the ring on this show. So, But as far as this match goes overall, I was thoroughly impressed by both guys. Both guys were so ahead of their time as far as athleticism goes with big men. Um, very, very mobile Neither they've got neither of these guys. They don't look very athletic, but they both really are. So I was really impressed with both of their performances in this match. At one point, just for example, you have Bossman is down on the mat inside the ring. Vader is on the ramp. Vader runs the ramp, jumps over the top rope into the ring, and hits a splash on Boss. Crazy spot. Really, really cool. Um, I think Boss got his knees up. It looked kind of brutal. Um, but still, still really cool to see that. Um, and on another point, so Boss is sitting on the top turnbuckle. Fader meets him, and it looks like he's going to go for a superplex. But instead of a superplex, it's a fucking DDT off the second rope. Which sounds, you have to see it to see how brutal this looks. It's a, he's driving, spiking his head from, what, four feet off the ground onto the mat. Really, it's it's crazy nobody got injured on that. Because that was really, really... That's a really dangerous looking spot, but I guess they executed it perfectly. It looks really good. Um, Vader follows up with a Vader bomb for a two count. So Vader says, well, better up it up a notch. So he goes to the top rope and hits a moonsault. Vader hits a moonsault from the top rope onto Boss for the win. Really, really, again, a pretty, another entertaining match. The, mat, the show kind of started off slow, but I enjoyed this match too, especially for the time. And, uh, you know, how how big these guys were and the style and the pace that they were able to perform at. Uh, really impressive stuff there from both guys. But uh, the funniest part about this whole little piece of business here is the post-match stuff. So Harley Race is back. He tries to handcuff Boss to the ropes. But Boss fights back and beats the shit out of Race with his nightstick. Um, Vader doesn't seem to care. He's kind of just watching this happen, but he's just, he's a monster. He's a brainless monster. So I guess he doesn't care. Um, so yeah, boss beats the hell out of Harley race. And then after the match backstage, uh, Nick Bockwinkle, who I think I mentioned previously, he's the commissioner, quote unquote, of WCW at this point. He chastises boss for this. He goes up to boss. He says, Hey, how can you do that? You can't do that in here. No, this, that's not what WCW is about. And then he takes away his nightstick, he takes away his handcuffs, and he takes away his name. 
So he no longer has a nightstick, handcuffs, and he's no longer the boss, which is hilarious when you know the reason behind it is because uh, a cease and desist was given from WWF. I guess it was too close to the big boss man, both his name and his character. So to avoid any lawsuit, they changed his name from the boss to Guardian Angel. You know, no nightstick, no handcuffs. He was a completely different character um, just because of WWF and how they claimed to own that property, which they did. So really funny <laughs> kind of post-match stuff there. And I'm really interested to see, because I've never really seen the Guardian Angel um, wrestle or cut a promo or anything. So looking forward to see how that turns out. Um, which brings us to the main event. The WCW World Championship is on the line. Ric Flair versus Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Ooh, doggy. What a match this was. Um, definitely not on par with their previous matches. Um, but given where they are in their respective careers, I think it's amazing the quality of a match they're still able to put out, even though they've done it time and time again already. Um... First of all, I just want to say, I don't know if they did this for all main events, but I loved the uh, the UFC intro that Michael Buffer gave. Obviously, his brother, Bruce Buffer, does it now for UFC, but it was funny to see the parallels and how they introduced a main event. Um, it made it feel like a big match. It made it feel like a big deal. Um, almost gave it kind of a boxing match. Um, like I said, UFC main event kind of feel. I thought that was a little added detail that I enjoyed. Um, as far as the match itself, um, it was really good. I mean, I'm not. It's not exactly a hot take to tell you that Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat was pretty fucking good. It's just the little things that they do that make both of them so great, and that make the matches that these two have so great. Um, I like the part where they like they're like jockeying for position in the corner. Steamboat has Flair in the corner. He's all tied up. And then when they get separated, uh, Flair slaps the shit out of... He, like, palm strikes Steamboat. And then Steamboat immediately reciprocates. Like, stuff like that made it feel intense. And it made it feel believable. It made it feel like a fight. And we all know that's the kind of stuff that I love. Um, so, the match is pretty good. Um, went on for, like, 30 minutes or so. It's kind of similar stuff that you would expect to see. From Flair and Steamboat, um, but the finish of this match, unfortunately, is what I remember most. And the finish of the match was just not good. It was, um, so Steamboat had Ric Flair in like a chicken wing, which he used to beat Flair in 1980, like five years earlier, and was able to beat Flair and take his championship at that point. So Steamboat has him in this chicken wing, um, but then Flair maneuvers his weight, to where uh, Steamboat is on his back on the mat, but he still has Flair in the chicken wing. So both their shoulders are on the mat at the same time. Ref counts three, and then confusion ensues. Again, more over-convoluted uh, finishes to these matches. Um, whatever. I, I don't know. I didn't like it. Um, it just It was really deflating. Ultimately, they just called a draw, and Flair retains the title. So... A really good match, but like I said, a deflating finish. Um, and then the show just ends. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was a really anticlimactic ending to the show. But I guess, I'm like I said, main event was good, but the bizarre ending almost ruined it for me. Um, and that's kind of consistent with a lot of the matches on the show. You know, you see 
they all have their, you know, at least a few good spots here and there. They all have their moments of brilliance, but then the finishes just suck donkey dick. Like, <laughs> deflating, um, anticlimactic, um, boring, dull, out of, like, it's like, why is this on pay-per-view? <laughs> You're going to have all these dusty finishes on a pay-per-view, one after the other. I don't know, man. It's just, maybe that's what people sought back then. Maybe that's what made a good show. Maybe they were trying to bring people to watch WCW Saturday night. Maybe that was the goal here. Whatever it is, um, overall, this pay-per-view was pretty underwhelming to me. Um, Like I said, I've never watched WCW. This is my first time getting into it. So maybe it's just a a vibe I need to understand. Maybe, I don't know what it is. But whatever whatever it is, WCW is going to go through major changes very quickly. Like I said, we have Hogan coming in in a month. Then you got Macho Man. You got the NWO starting up. You got Goldberg. You got Sting uh, going through his transformations. You have the Cruiserweights coming in. All the people from Mexico and Japan. Uh, They start to formulate really good shows. But as of this point, May of 1994, um, I can't can't confidently say that this was a good show. Um, Although it did have its moments. And ultimately, it's just interesting. Whether the matches are good or bad, it's still like interesting to me to see where wrestling was at this point. And in relation to what WWF was putting out. Because it's, it wasn't totally different than what WWF did at WrestleMania a month or two before this. A lot of, that, a lot of the formulas in these matches, they, they kind of carried over from promotion to promotion. It's really once, you know, Nitro starts that we get to see that separation and how the product is portrayed. At least that's my understanding of it. I could be totally wrong. And that's why I'm going through all these shows. So Spring Stampede, I give it a solid thumbs in the middle, maybe towards the down, but still a a fun watch for various different reasons if you want to go back and check it out. But that's uh, pretty much all I got for you guys today. Um, Once again, really, really appreciate you listening. Uh, Please check out apronbump.com for all of the various social medias that I have. Please follow them. Uh, also gives you links to all my episodes, allows you to subscribe to whatever platform that you watch or that you listen to this show on literally every platform, like literally if, if your platform isn't on there, tell me and I'll add it. Um, (laughs) but, um, yeah, go to my, go to apronbump.com, hit the subscribe button right at the top and it'll bring you to wherever you choose. Put your ears against my mouth um it's a weird end to this episode but (laughs) um yeah once again thank you guys for listening i'm hard